if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. This episode is the second part of my conversation with my Protestant friend, Ed, preparing him to come to the cathedral with me to experience his first Catholic Mass. We sat down and got into a, well, a longer-than-usual conversation, and so I've broken it up into several episodes of the podcast. In the first part, we talked about the purpose of the Mass and its general outline. In this part, we talk about the design of a Catholic church, how it's different than a Protestant church, and how it reflects eternal transcendent reality, which structures our encounter with Christ in the Mass. We also talk about why Catholic priests wear these ancient-looking robes instead of contemporary clothing, and whether the Catholic Church can ever change its doctrine or practices over time. Why hasn't the Mass evolved to something that's more culturally relevant today? So, jump right in and join us. After he goes to his first Mass at the cathedral, we'll record Ed's immediate impressions so that you can follow along on his journey wherever it leads. Welcome to Church Chats with Greg and Ed, where Greg and his Protestant friend Ed chat about the church. So this is sort of part two of this episode. We've been, Ed and I have been sitting here at the table talking about the Mass before he goes to his first Mass this weekend at the cathedral. And we were just talking about why we have the Mass, what the Mass is, sort of Protestant assumptions or misconceptions about the Mass. But we're going to keep the conversation going here and really talk about the parts of the Mass, what actually happens and what goes on in the church and help try to understand how that's biblical. It's not foreign. It's not weird. It's not pagan. So, um, so I just jump in here. Let's just kind of, right. let's just kind of pick this up. So first of all, let's talk about the design of the church, like architectural mm-hmm. layout of the church. So you and I both worked in that contemporary church world where for a long time what we were doing was designing churches to look like theaters or concert venues and the premise was that the purpose of church was to communicate and to some degree entertain people we'd say draw them in but so what we did and you and I both worked in that world you as a musician and, and myself as a teacher but what we did is we had big stages huge theatrical lights massive movie theater screens right uh we had uh, you know, comfy movie theater seats or concert seating so that people could look and hear and the, the band would come out with the lights and the colored this and the yep. backdrops. And essentially it was kind of an entertainment based thing. And our, and our logic to that was, well, we're putting on, you know, in a sense, a show for God where we're, we're, we're right. inter- we wouldn't say entertain, but what we're 
really doing is we we say presenting right. and allowing people to come, you know, us to communicate through song and teaching. And then the you and your band would come out and do your thing. And then there would be a five minute uh, video or that would play on the giant movie theater screen to kind of set up the message. And then uh, a guy like me would walk out with a headset on or something like that. Right. And stand in this in a spotlight and have a talk for a while to unpack whatever and by the way i we would pick whatever the topics were the scriptures were right. it was topical and it was usually a series so you'd say we're going to do a seven part series on building better marriages or you know a five part series on building healthy kids in an unhealthy world or, you know, managing your finances for God. Here's part five right. of the six part series or whatever it was. Right. And so we would cherry pick scriptures, but it was always done with the idea that our, the purpose of this was to bring people in, make them comfortable so we could communicate to them, right? transmit information and then draw them in to accept that information. It was an endless uh, attempt to, uh, to, to be clever. And to keep mm -hmm. people to keep people entertained, it was what? What are we going to do to top right. last week? Right. So let's talk a little bit from the beginning. And then, oh, by the way, when you and I met at the coffee house church, what had happened was the the sort of fads had shifted, mm -hmm. and this was in the early two thousands. The whole giant mega church concert venue thing had become kind of unfashionable, kind of post nine eleven. And what we were all trying to do is. Uh, encounter people sort of at a more horizontal level in the coffee house. So instead of having a giant band on a massive stage with a movie theater screen, we had you and a few guys with acoustic guitars sitting on stools like it was a pub or a coffee house. Which and, should have been a warning bell in the first place that, oh, well, that's out and now this is in. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And we actually, originally when we built that church, people didn't sit in rows of chairs. We had round tables set up. Right. So it looked like a coffee house or a pub. And right. then we would come out there like in a little, we had a pub stage, you know, remember it was just a little yeah. like six inch kind yeah. of platform in the corner. And a couple of guys would come out there with t-shirts on or shorts in the summer and flip flops. Right. And they'd have acoustic guitars. Or me with a Hawaiian shirt. You, yeah. Ed with a Hawaiian shirt. You'd kind of play some cool acoustic songs and everyone would sip coffee and, and kind yeah. of thing. And then I'd come out there and stand there and like, you know, unpack the Bible to people and people right. would, and we took, remember at that church, we took a coffee break in the middle of the service. Yeah. So you would do like 20, 30 minutes of, of, uh, worship music. Right. And then we would take a five minute coffee break where everybody go up and go refill their coffee, move around, you know, hang out, shake hands, and then come down and sit down. And we had these sofas and everything in there too. Right. People would sit down and like basically listen to a big Bible study. Well, and this I, was what I was sort of, considered to be cool at that time. I missed that. That's the part I missed because we had cookies. Yeah. <laughs> I could always get a big That's a right. fistful of cookies and tell my wife, look, it's church. Right. But the thing is, is the architecture in both instances was designed on the premise of, of connecting with people. Right. So when you thought that people would be best connected by sitting in a concert venue or arena, you built it that way. If you thought that people would best connect by sitting in a pub or a coffee house, you built it that way because it was all driven by what we thought the purpose was, was to create a place that would make people comfortable so that they would listen. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about what happens when you walk into a Catholic church and what's different. Yep. 
the first thing that you're going to notice, and this is always the first giveaway that you're in a Catholic church, not a Protestant church, is what's in the center of the stage. It's not technically called the stage, but I'll get that right. in a second. But what's in the center of the stage? What's in the center of the stage in the Catholic church is the altar. What's in the center of a Protestant church used to be the pulpit. Yep. Okay. And I've always said, and I may have said before on this uh, podcast, that in all the Christian traditions that I've encountered, there are three things that happen. And they happen in the Catholic mass, happen in a Protestant service, that there is uh, singing, there's songs, there's a sermon of some sort, and there are sacraments that happen every week or occasionally. And in the sort of Calvinist traditional Protestant services, the sermon is central. Mm-hmm. Everything else is preliminary or antecedent to or right. supportive of the sermon, the transmitting of the teaching about the word. And so what's in the center was the pulpit. In the super contemporary churches that you and I were a part of, what became central was the songs. So mm-hmm. in fact, it was even, that was the language is this is the worship. Right. You were the worship pastor. Right. Because this is the worship and the worship consists of us singing songs. So what happened is the pulpit, we got rid of the pulpits and what was central was a band or a yep. drum set. Yep. So that your band could come out and perform. Right. And then a guy would come out and stand there and talk. So the sermon was central, there's a pulpit, uh, or the song central. But what in the Catholic church and with the traditional church, going back to the beginning, is it's the sacraments are central. And so what's in the center of the stage is an altar. And it is profoundly biblical because it is the incarnation and sacrifice of Christ that's the center of our faith, is it not? Mm-hmm. What's really, yes, we should sing songs. Yes, we should listen to sermons. Nobody disputes that. And you do that in the mass. Right. But the center of our faith is the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so therefore the altar is placed centrally because he is present in the Eucharist. This is my body. This is my blood. Now, just as a spell, a quick little Protestant misunderstanding or slander, uh, Jesus is not being re-sacrificed. Okay. Right? This is the whole thing. It's like, well, you keep re-sacrificing one's blood. Of course it is. What it is, is we are commemorating or participating in the eternal sacrifice of Christ. So, again, biblical reference. John, uh, Revelation chapter 5 the apostle John is taken into the throne room of God mm-hmm. and he sees the ancient of days sitting on a throne, right? The father and what's in this. And he sees all of the angels and the, and the saints and the elders and all that standing around. There's candlesticks or this and that, but what is in the center of the throne room of God is I saw a lamb that had been slain in the center of the throne room of God because the, eternal sacrifice of Christ is like an eternal moment. It's in the eternal now. Mm-hmm. And so what is happening in the Catholic mass on that altar is that we are participating in the eternal now of the sacrifice of Christ. In a sense, you can say that we're reenacting it, but we're not really reenacting that he's being sacrificed over again. We are right. participating right now as we speak the lamb of God is, right. is is central in that throne room. And we are in a sense bringing that here. So that's the first thing. Now around that altar, the area around at that platform is called the sanctuary. 
Now, Protestant churches, the sanctuary is the whole church. Right. Right? Right. And that's because in the Protestant notion or the evangelical Protestant notion, uh, all of us together form the priesthood of all believers Mm -hmm. and the sanctuary comes when we gather in his name. But the sanctuary here is actually the area around the altar. And again, that's a biblical reference. It's a completion of the Old Testament sanctuary. So if you go into the tabernacle or you go into the temple, they would go into the holy place. Mm-hmm. And now my Protestant friends would say, well, yeah, but when Christ died, the curtain was torn aside. And Yes, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that that wasn't a foreshadowing because in Hebrews chapter 8, uh, we read that he is our high priest, our perfect high priest mm-hmm. who goes in before God before us. We read again in Revelation 5 and in Revelation 21, 22, that in the new Jerusalem, uh, he is right. their king and the people dwell around him. And so that area around the center of Christ is the sanctuary. It's the holy place. Um, so around the edge of that, you will have then the ambo. Now, the ambo is like the lectern or the pulpit, and it comes from a Latin word that just basically means the edge. And that's because you have at the center the word incarnate, and then the word written is, anti- is, is, is adjacent to that. Because, again, for Protestants, the written word is primary. But, of course, the written word testifies to tells us about the actual incarnate word. Mm-hmm. If, if, if Jesus weren't made incarnate, if he weren't uh, incarnate, if, if the word weren't incarnated and sacrificed and risen, there would be no reason to have a written testimony to that. Well, and, and you're, is there ever going to be a time now or in the next life or in all of eternity that I don't need Jesus to be my high priest? Right. I'm always, always going to need Jesus to be my right. high priest. And that sacrifice that he made is always going to stand between me and God. Excellent point, right? And the risen Christ has wounds. You know, the, the, uh, w- when we look forward into the new heaven and new earth, the new heaven and new earth is there because he is the lamb that was slain and made whole. He is the king. He's the resurrected. So there is this participation in the eternal realities. And when you look at the mass and you look at the church, what it's doing is it is, it is uh, completing the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, mm-hmm. and it is foreshadowing the new completion, it's in the new covenant, it's foreshadowing right. the completion of that in heavenly things. Really, the front of the church or the church is designed to represent eternal realities. Again, it's not there to like our stadiums or our coffee houses, right. there to be a vehicle for communication. It is there to actually represent and incarnate the eternal reality, which is why the area where the people sit is not called the sanctuary, it's called the nave. N-A-V-E. So that sounds like the word navel for a boat, and it is, because, uh, right, the, the church, all of us, mm-hmm. the, for all of us, the church represents the ark, which carries us through the chaos of death, right? Like, so Noah put, you know, Noah's family and the animals mm-hmm. in the ark, the flood came, there's destruction, and the church is, in a sense, is the ark, that mm-hmm. carries us through that, the boat, the ship. 
And then we see that, by the way, if you, when you come to Rome with me someday, we'll go to St. Peter's, uh, we'll go to the Vatican, we'll look up on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And you look at Michelangelo's frescoes on the ceiling. There's one that represents, uh, you source the famous one of Adam's, you know, finger touching God. Mm -hmm. But one of the frescoes up there shows the flood and it shows uh, the ark floating on the waters of the flood that Michelangelo painted. And that ark looks like a church because it, the church is the ark of the covenant that carries us through. And it also represents St. Peter's boat, right? Mm. Because Peter, uh, as the rock upon which the church is, is built, Peter and the apostles are sailing in Peter's boat and the storm is going to overcome them, but Jesus is with them. The boat of St. Peter, the Ark of the Covenant, the ship of St. Peter, we are all in this and it is carrying through the storms of this life. See, see I had never, I had never thought about the, uh, what John described in Revelation. I knew that he saw it and that it was real, but it never, it, I, I haven't thought about it until very recently and maybe even the mo at the most right now, that, that this was an eternal reality. This, right. this is what's actually going on. And I think I always thought, and maybe this is my fault, I don't know, but I always thought that, well, okay, that's nice that, that, we, that, that John saw that picture of. But, you know, that sacrifice that Jesus made, that's all done now. And we're not going we to, we, we need to move on and we need to uh, live our lives now. And so all of that is just... It's always come to me as just presented as just a really nice story. Right. And that it was, it's not that it wasn't true or that we didn't believe it, but what's that got to do with me? Right. But John, right? So it's called the Revelation of John or something called the Apocalypse of John, which the, the word Apocalypse and Revelation mean the same thing, which is something being revealed. John right. sees revealed eternal realities. He sees, mm -hmm. in a sense, the, the veils of space-time of what we can see now pulled back to see what is eternally true. Sort of, in a sense, you step outside time. I th you may have heard me say this, because I used to say it over the years, uh, that the sacraments, in some sense, are God punching a hole mm -hmm. in this fabric of space-time so that the eternal realities, light of eternity, sort of shines through into our world. And when we step into the church, when we step into the mass, when we step into the sacraments, what we was really doing is the, that, that hole in the fabric of space-time, what we see and feel is, is in a sense a hole is punched in it and the eternal light of heaven, the eternal realities and truths of what's really going on shine through in that moment. That's what happens to us in baptism. That's what happens to us in the Eucharist. This is my body, but it wasn't, it isn't past tense. It, it, this wasn't my body and blood, or it's going to be. It is now. When the word is proclaimed, this is my word. Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, when he talks about the high priest on the order of Melchizedek, Paul does, he says, he, we have a high priest. Not that we had, or we're going to have. We have a high priest on the order of Melchizedek who makes this perfect sacrifice to us. So the design, what I'm trying to drive at is that the design of the Catholic Church as it's designed architecturally, is to reflect scripture by, by describing or enacting or, or instantiating, right? Mm -hmm. Incarnating mm -hmm. the eternal realities that scripture testifies to. 
And here, here's another thing about that. Like, so when you come in, there'll be the ambo, right? When that's where the, we'll get to that in a second, where the scriptures are read. But at the beginning of the Catholic mass, the first thing that'll happen is that as the procession comes down, they will bring a copy of the gospels. So a physical book mm-hmm. with the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in them. And they're brought down and the mass begins by those being set into the center of the altar because the testimony of the gospel, the testimony of, of, G, of Jesus's life, his incarnation, death, and resurrection is placed in the center mm-hmm. of that altar because that testimony testifies to the reality. This feels like uh, you talked about, uh, I, and I have heard you say that about God uh, punching a hole in the fabric of space and time. It, it feels to me very much like that painting you just talked about where God's finger is coming down and touching yeah. and touching the human, uh, Adam's finger or whoever. Um, that's a very, uh, to me, that's a very compelling right. thing. What, what more could I ask? You right. know? Now, here's one more thing. So the center is the altar because that's where the, the reality of Christ's death and resurrection is celebrated and participated in. Mm-hmm. The ambo where the scriptures are read is on the periphery of the sanctuary, the holy place. The music, where the musicians are, is outside the sanctuary. It's never up on inside what's called right. the sanctuary, the area immediately around it. It's outside it because while singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs or whatever is important, it isn't the centrality of the holy place, right? It isn't a right. reenaction. So you'll always have just off the sanctuary, you'll have the area where the choir or the cantor or whatever musical things happen, which is a little bit different for you having been a professional church musician for your career, being in the center. This is, uh, reminds me of, you know, God touching us. Um, When I worked for the big church or any other church, uh, even as a volunteer, which I did for years, I was a volunteer before I got paid to do it. um, We would do um, adult immersion baptisms. Mm -hmm. And, um, while I was doing, while I was, and I was, I would always be right in the middle of, it. and at the, uh, at the big church where I worked, we would bring out this, 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 this portable tub that they would fill up the night before or whatever. I would always feel bad like for people like, do they heat that? Because this is going to be, you know, <laughs> um, anyway. And so I would be standing at the keyboard and I'd be like eight feet away. And these people are, this is, it never felt more real right. to me than at that point. And people would people's lives were changing right right in front of me and, and some of them were right. crying and I'd sometimes be teared up right along with them because this was the real deal. Well, it's the power of the sacrament. Transformation is actually happening. That's that hole in, in space time, the fabric of space time being punched. You are seeing an actual uh, change in someone's eternal right. state and actual transformation happening because God is doing something there. Right. Um, in the same way, if you are at a wedding, at that moment of the vows being exchanged and the right. wedding being pronounced, a change, a sacramental change is happening. So that's that putting those things that God does at the center. That doesn't mean that it is important to have announcements about the bake sale or right. sing some songs. That's not that that isn't important. But what's at the center is what God does. Mm-hmm. And that's biblical. So let's talk about what happens in the Mass. Um, Actually, the Mass begins, and let's get to this other thing that looks weird to Protestants when you come in. 
And that is the, the priest dressed in all these, this weird outfit, right? He's not in skinny jeans with a hip t-shirt, you know, an untucked, you know, shirt right. and, uh, and hipster glasses. He's right. dressed in this weird thing that looks pagan or archaic, but there's reasons. So in out, out, off the side of the church, there will always be uh, something called the sacristy. And that's where the priest prepares mm -hmm. to come in. And he puts on a series of vestments. Now, all of these vestments isn't like, hey, what could we come up with that's super weird, <laughs> like an outfit or a costume? Right. Every one of them has a reason. And every one of them symbolizes something that's very scriptural. And, and there is a series of prayers that the priest prays as he puts them on. So the thing that he puts on first, over his regular clothes, of course, but what he puts on first is called the alb, A-L-B. And basically it's a long white garment, pure white, uh, and he puts it on as sort of the base layer, if you will. But it's exactly the same garment, the same robe that uh, is used in baptism. Hmm. So whether it's a child being baptized or an adult being baptized, they're put in this baptismal gown. And what he's putting on in the alb at the base layer is that he is a baptized Christian. Okay. Right? Yeah. So the first base layer for the priest to come in is, I am among the baptized. Um, I have been washed in the blood of the lamb like everyone else here. So that establishes who he is. Then the next thing he does is he ties a, a cord or a rope uh, around his uh, waist called a cincture. C-I-N-C-T-U-R-E, a cincture. Uh, and it's like a belt, but what it does is it, it, some of this harkens back to when Paul talks about dressing yourself and the armor of God. Mm -hmm. But what this is, is it girds the priest and there's a prayer that he prays as he puts it on to gird him with uh, purity and chastity. So before he comes to celebrate the sacred things, he puts on, I am first a baptized Christian. Secondly, I bind myself mm -hmm. um, in purity to come with a pure heart before what I do. The next thing he does is he puts on something called a stole, an S-T-O-L-E, which is like a long sort of narrow band. It's like about three or four inches wide and it's, it goes over his neck and all the way down. And the stole is a sign of his priesthood. Hmm. Okay. And this, and priests all have different color stoles. And whenever they, they perform their priestly duties, whenever they perform the sacraments, they put a stole on to indicate as they lay it around their neck, I am now acting in the person of Christ. Okay. And they have different colored ones. So for example, when you go to confession, the priest will have, most priests keep one in their pocket or whatever. They have a purple stole, this long kind of purple ribbon thing that they put around their neck. And what that is, is that is the purple being the color of repentance. Hmm. And so they put on that and say, I am now putting this around. I'm now acting in the person of Christ. This is a sign of my priesthood, my in persona Christi. And then the final thing that he puts over the top of it all is called a chasuble, C-H-A-S-U-B-L-E. Uh, and the chasuble is the final vestment. And it's usually colored with the liturgical color. So like ordinary time is green and, mm -hmm. um, and fe high feast days are white uh, and purple is for like Lent or um, uh, Advent. 
Um, and so what he does is he puts this on, and this is the final thing that he puts over and he prays. And what it is is it is unselfish love. It is the final thing that he lays over himself. And there's a prayer that he prays that may I, my, uh, may I take on Christ's yoke mm. and I may have charity. So it's not just like, hey, let's come up with a cool outfit. Each of these things has a biblical reference. Each of them symbolizes something very important so that the priest is prayerfully dressed to come before and enact his role. I find myself, as, we're, as I'm listening to you describe this, having a very, um, I can hear myself, I can feel this impulse to say, is all that really necessary? <laughs> and I can hear my Protestant friends saying, oh, come on. Like, is all that really necessary? And then I, I, I feel like I already know the answer, which is if I want my relationship with God to have deep meaning, why would I not want all this? Why would I not want right. the, the thing that I'm, the, the place that I'm going to encounter God? Why would I want that to just be, why would I not, there, not want there to be layers of meaning? But right. that, that's a good thing. Right. Well, and, and another thing goes back to the things that we talked about in the last episode, the first half of this conversation we're sitting here, um, about our cultural assumptions. So back right. again, when, you know, with our baby boomer or Gen X cultural assumptions, back when I first encountered Christianity in the hip and groovy Southern California churches, and we said, well, you know, first, certainly first century Christians dressed in the equivalent of blue jeans and flip-flops right. and, you know, a cool untucked t-shirt or something. And that's surely what they must have done. <laughs> they go, how do you know that? Right. Uh, seriously, that's what part of my journey to Catholicism is I just made that argument myself for decades. And finally, uh, it occurred to me, how do I know that? Well, it doesn't say anything about them putting on any kind of a special outfit for church services. I go, well, right. But just because it doesn't say they didn't, did, I mean, right there, that's an argument right. from silence. And, and that's where we start to look at what we know about the early church and know that there, the, the, the priesthood or that various kinds of things, you know, certainly the Old Testament priesthood or teachers or rabbis, certainly the rabbis certainly donned certain kinds of things to teach in um, and these kinds of things. And so we can look back at what the culture was then, but our just default assumption is they must not have done, they must not have worn anything special. They just walked in in whatever the first century equivalent right. to blue jeans and a t-shirt was. Well, here's another, another. Again, that's an assumption that when we say we're sola scriptura, that's an assumption that, that isn't scriptural. Here's another argument against that that occurs to me. Even if that was true, why would it be a bad thing for the church to grow yes. in understanding and to grow in the way they did things. Right. And then over the centuries, they got better at it. So this is, I'm glad you brought this up because this is going to come up in the future on other topics uh, as we talk. And that is this understanding of how the church develops. So again, the sort of contemporary Protestant notion is that what we're supposed to do is go back to, to always live in the year zero. Right. Yeah, so yeah. whatever we think, what we think or we imagine that Christians were doing in the year zero, in the first right. weeks or months, right, um, that that is we're supposed to perpetually live in the year zero. But if you think about that, 
that, that's a strange assumption. So if I plant a tree in my yard, an apple tree, an orange tree, an avocado tree, whatever the case is, I plant it and the, and the seed begins to grow and over time it gets taller and taller and it begins to bear fruit. Mm-hmm. And it's still an avocado tree. It's still an apple tree. It's still an orange tree or whatever, mm-hmm. right? But it develops and it grows and it bears fruit. If I plant a vineyard, the little vines come up and they grow and they bear fruit. And that fruit is, is not alien to the thing. It's the actual outgrowth. Yeah. The same way, if I have a child, I don't want my child to remain a baby or an infant forever. I want it to grow and mature. The issue is whether you've taken on things that are alien. And the truth right. is, is that over, the t- over time, over 2,000 years, the church grew. It didn't grow in ways that were alien. Things weren't grafted onto it. They weren't alien things. They were natural outgrowths. Somebody once said, you were talking about Thomas Aquinas. I love this line that uh, I can't remember who said it, but they said, you know, did who knew more about the Trinity, St. Peter or Thomas Aquinas? And it's an interesting question because what you would say is, well, St. Peter knew quite a bit about the Trinity because he knew Jesus. Right. But over 1,500 years or 1,200 years, what we, the roof of reflection on the Trinity and the ability to articulate and express what we know and what we've come to know about the Trinity based on the testimony of Peter and the apostles and reflection and prayer upon them, St. Thomas Aquinas could write a book on the Trinity. Right. St. Peter knew him. And so the thing is, is but that growth of knowledge... Yeah. is an organic thing. Yeah, I love I love the idea. Uh those um it's it's um that year zero thing. By the way, that's the name of my new band is year <laughs> zero. Um uh yeah that's that's a quite a thought for me to think. Uh and I started thinking it a couple of years ago. Why would I assume that the early church was the model how things could be done as if as if nobody was smart enough to figure anything new out or or to come to any more and better conclusions or that the holy spirit would reveal even more you know nuances and truth well it's a strange assumption because in a sense it's an assumption that that the church is a dead thing because living things grow and mature right now one would say well then can doctrine change and you get a weird no because again Apple trees produce apples. Right. Grapevines produce grapes, right? The church can't grow into something or can't produce fruit that is not organically tied to the roots or what it is. The church can't become something it's not, but it does and should grow and mature over time and bear fruit. And so over 2,000 years, as the as per the Great Commission, as the... Uh, church has gone out to make more disciples of Jesus Christ, teach him to obey everything, been his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. The church has enfolded the nations, people from every tongue, tribe, language, and nation, and it has grown and matured and borne fruit. And that is not to say that truth is compromised or that truth changes, but only that the church matures, and that's what living things do. They grow and they mature, and the church is a living thing. Would it would it be fair to say then that I don't know if this is true or not? If if at points along the way that the church has altered 
its language or altered what it said? Would it would it be fair to say that they were actually saying, "Oh, you know what? I think we see it better now." Um, this is this is we're we're trying to we're trying to get this right, you know. So this is this is always the debate over the centuries, and of course. Uh, you know, you read Chesterton's orthodoxy and with yep. the whole premise of it. And the, by the way, the premise of the ministry that we launched here, One Whirling Adventure, the name of our nonprofit, because that's a direct line from Chesterton's yep. Yep. Uh, orthodoxy, that the, the orthodoxy or the church has always been a whirling adventure as it's tried to incorporate, stay true to the truth right. while, in, while encountering, incorporating new things. And... So there's this always this long-standing thing of the church cannot compromise the truth. The truth is the truth, but the church does grow and mature just as people grow and mature, mm-hmm. just as apple trees grow and mature and bear new fruit. And the apple tree looks different 20 years uh, after it's planted yep. than it does today, yep. that a, a young person grows and matures. St. Paul looked different by the end of his life than he did at the Damascus Road, he grew and matured. Peter grew and matured. Uh, the church grows and matures, and yet it has to have continuity. So yes, it does learn to express things in more mature ways. It does look more deeply and peer deeply into things. It encounters things that it had never known or experienced or encountered before and figures out how to apply the central gospel truths to them. So there is a sense of, again, I don't like to use the word progressive because progression means some things in our culture. That, right. But I think maturation mm-hmm. is a better word. Yeah. Do, 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 um, just kind of an aside here. How much wiggle room is there around the world in Catholic churches for these vestments to look different or be different? Uh, is there... Is, um, is it got to, is it, does it have to be exactly like that? Do people, do that's, with it? that's a really good question. So, so certainly if you go to Africa or whatever, there may be like different sorts of, you know, embroidered designs or okay. this or that. But the, the, like, for example, the four vestments that I described, right. those are prescribed by the Roman Missal. I don't care if you're in Africa or Thailand or whatever, you're, there's the all, the cincture, the stole and the chasuble. Right. Those are those are fixed things because they have biblical meaning. Now, uh, and the, the liturgical colors are fixed. Mm-hmm. So now certainly you'll see priests in different parts of the world where maybe the embroidery, you know, might yep. might reflect some cultural, you know, differences or whatever. But there are certain the, the missal, the Roman missal, the rubrics of the mass prescribe these biblical elements. Well, see, this is a thing that we talked about this yeah, a year ago, back going back and forth. Uh, I think a big, long text conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you're faster with your thumbs than I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I was typing this on my computer to do this. But you sa- I said that what appealed to me about this, and you echoed the same thing, was that no matter where I go in the world, mm-hmm. I walk into a mass in Africa or yeah. Russia or any place else, it's the same thing. It's yeah. always the same thing. It might it might be in a different language, and they might you know all that. Right. But um, the mass is the mass. The mass is the mass, and it, that appeals to me. It appeals to me, and it was really appealing to me when I was on my road to Rome and I was traveling around the world, and I came to feel at home when I walked in a Catholic church, even before I. 
finally made the decision to enter the Catholic Church, what I realized is that wherever I went in the world, not only would the Mass be the same, but I was walking to the same church that was reenacting, right? The, right. the Mass was being celebrated. That's the term. The Mass was being celebrated in this location. Right but it was the same mass and it was being celebrated in the same church. Yeah, that's very appealing. Yeah. All right, keep going. What's, what's the next thing? Here? Tell you what, let's, let's do this. Uh, we're going to keep talking. I want to walk through the parts of the mass, but for those of you who are listening, we're going to uh, make a little bit of a break here and pick this up in the next episode. So if you're listening and you want to hear the parts of the mass, uh, just click on the next episode. Wonderful. One of the best ways to learn more about Catholicism, its beliefs and practices, saints and stories, heritage and culture, is to visit the places where the Catholic story actually unfolded with someone who can explain it, answer your questions, and help you apply it to your life. Especially as a part of a group of pilgrims that are sharing and supporting and praying for each other as they discover together. That's why the ministry that produces this podcast one Whirling Adventure offers pilgrimage trips. I'll be your guide and teacher, unpacking Catholic faith, life, and heritage for you in some of Catholicism's most significant sites. If you'd like to join me for a pilgrimage to places like Italy, Ireland, Israel, or France, visit the website onewhirlingadventure.org to see the dates and details of upcoming trips. That's onewhirlingadventure.org and click on the travel tab at the top. Let's discover our Catholic faith and heritage together. Thank you for listening. Considering Catholicism is produced by One Whirling Adventure, a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a simple mission to excite and educate people about historic Catholic Christianity and to equip them to live, share, and defend it in the 21st century. We depend completely on your generous donations. Learn more and consider supporting our ministry by visiting onewhirlingadventure.org.